Welcome to the Open Book Podcast. What you're about to hear is a live recording from an event that took place at the Open Book Festival in September 2022. In this discussion called Enabling the Future, Pumla Deneo Hola, Lucas Ledwaba, Malcolm Ray, and Zongezo Zibi speak to Carol Payton about potential solutions to some of our biggest challenges. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Um, we've got a, a difficult topic, which is we are supposed to discuss all the big questions. Um, so uh, we're going to also depend on you to um, ask the big questions. Um, so I'd like to introduce my panel. It's um, Pumla Tola. She, her book is called Female Fear Factory, a book about patriarchy, not just in South Africa, but the general phenomenon of patriarchy internationally. Um, uh, Songezo Zibi, whose book is called Manifesto. Um, you'll, learn, you'll learn why now, if you don't already know. Um, Malcolm Ray, whose book is called The Tyranny of Growth, which is um, a very ambitious book uh, on uh, both economics and, and capitalism and economic theory. And Lucas Ledwaba, who's sort of tackled the really, really big question, I would say, um, whose book is on land, A Desire to Return to the Ruins. So what I'm going to do is, um, because we've got these four books that are very different, but obviously all relate, you know, can all, are all big issues um, that, that, that we need to look, that we need to deal with as a society. I'm going to go to each, each person, get them to speak a little bit about their book, ask them a few questions, and then we go to kind of try and from that, let the, allow that to open the doors to the big, to the big questions. Um, sorry, my laptop. Right, so I'm going to start with, um, with you, Pumla. Um, the book, this book is a book about patriarchy and, fem and how patriarchy and female fear are an integral part of one another. How patriarchy uses fear to oppress and suppress opposition, how it uses fear to make women believe that violence against women is ordinary, expected, even legitimate in, in so many environments, not just here um, in South Africa. What for me is the, of the quote of the book is the passage that gives the book its purpose to be found right at the start in the preface where you wrote, um, it is never enough to simply illustrate how patriarchy works in order to understand it. The feminist imperative is to think against it, strategize it, and consistently work to destroy it. Um, the, 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 there's another quote which I also want to, which I also want to pick out. Um, female, the female fear factory reminds us that all women are safe to violate, are beatable, are killable. This is what it means to be female in this context. It means to be legitimately dominable and ultimately disposable, which is not contradicted by the centrality of women's labor in the regeneration of patriarchal societies. So yeah, we have started on quite a heavy note. I um, hope you're all up for it. Um, Pumla. <laughs> Are we worse than other societies? Tell us, sort of in the context of your book, are we worse, are we more violent, are we more oppressive, um, are we more submissive 
Um, is patriarchy, are there peculiarities of patriarchy in South Africa, or is it, or it, is it the same everywhere? Give us your, your view. Um, thanks, Carol. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back at Open Book, um, having skipped the last two years. Um, I, okay, so big question. Um, yes, there are peculiarities, I think, um, in South Africa's um, patriarchy and patriarchal structuring and, and patterns of violence. Um, and I'll say a little bit just now. Um, but I don't, are we worse? I don't know. I don't know that we're worse because I don't know that we know how to measure better or worse. Right. I think that the, you know, patriarchy is, 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 governs the whole world. Right. And um, there are aspects that, I, that are clearer in some spaces than others, depending on who's looking. There are, I mean, also, the, I mean, patriarchy is also like, like many systems of violence, or maybe like all violence, systems of violence and of oppression. Um, works very well with, with obfuscation. So I think to be South African, to be African, to be Latin American sometimes, is to sometimes to be Asian, is to live with, with the idea that your patriarchy is worse than other forms of patriarchy. Right. Um, but I don't, I find that incredibly unconvincing. I think that um, some forms, patriarchy is able to obfuscate and mask itself better in, in, in certain places, depending on who's looking. So no, I don't think we are, I don't necessarily think we're worse. I don't want to say no, we are not worse. Um, mm. But I also don't want to say yes, we, we are worse. I think there are areas where we do significantly worse than other areas. I think, um, and I think, it's, I think it's integrated. I think that the extent of the violence we live with, so we can measure the violence of patriarchy or certain patriarchal violence in our societies and femicide rates and, 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 and um, beatings and abductions and rapes and, 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 and so on. But that's a measure of two things. That's a measure of having certain kinds of systems to be able to measure that. Right. That's um, kind of a historical um, fact as well. But I, um, patriarchy as a whole, no, I don't think we're necessarily the worst. Having said that, I do think that our levels of patriarchal violence are yeah. unacceptable. And extreme. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, perhaps, yes, patriarchy governs the world, but I do think one of the features of South Africa is violence. Mm -hmm. And um, you certainly do see that expressed very much in, in um, patriarchal relations. I mean, you talk about destroying patriarchy. How do we destroy patriarchy? Will it ever be destroyed? <laughs> Well, <laughs> I'm a feminist, so I, yes, it has to be destroyable. <laughs> Otherwise, I kind of, I have to go find another politics. <laughs> um, and a, another politics that excludes um, being a feminist. I do think it's destroyable. I think that it's, um, 
I think patriarchy changes, and we see that it's, you know, we don't, any society is not experiencing patriarchy in exactly the same forms that it did 50 years ago, 100 years ago. So I think the fact that it changes and mutates so much is, 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 is a measure of its changeability and possibility, possibly it, our capacity to destroy it. I also think that, you know, I'm, a, I'm also a student of history, and I think that when we look at, there are many things that are not, that haven't been here since the beginning of time that we can track um, and know, you know, are a thousand years old or 500 years old, right? Yeah. So to live in a, in a kind of, you know, what bell hooks used to call white supremacist capitalist patriarchy is to find it very difficult to imagine that there was a world before racism or a world before capitalism. And I think we have to imagine that there was a world before racism, there was a world before capitalism, and there's a world, a world without patriarchy has to be possible, but it's not a world that's gonna make itself. Yeah. And I think like any powerful system, powerful system of domination, of course it's going to resist. I mean, someone like Tenjim Tinso, for example, and, I, and I'm convinced by this argument, argues that part of the violence, the stranglehold of gendered violence and you know, patriarchal violence in South Africa is a result of our history, yes, but part of it is a direct response to the very specific wins made in, in at least, you know, on, not just on paper. Um, it, it, is a, it, is, it, is also, it is both historic and it is a measure of the backlash. So if we take the second part then, that, 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 that part of the violence that we experience in South Africa, patriarchal violence that we experience in South Africa is partly backlash, then we have to recognize that, because backlash only comes in response to some success. Right. Right? I mean, if we think about what backlash in, in, in kind of Faludi's terms, mm. right? So a very specific response against a free, against feminism. So a pushback, a patriarchal pushback. Right. And so if we think about violence in both of those terms and we're able to hold both the historic inheritance and it as response, we have to, res we have to then consider that, you know, maybe destroying patriarchy is not as, Maybe it's not in 10 years or 50 years, but it's not an impossibility. Maybe we are actually making significant impact. Well, definitely, I think it is a struggle. And um, that struggle, we have made progress in that struggle. But um, something like the Me Too movement, where we saw women, um, very, very accomplished, you know, confident women um, holding out and, and being ashamed to talk about their experiences and then the Me Too movement bringing that out. So yeah, we know we are in a, we are in a constant struggle. So Ngez, I'm gonna to move to you next. Um, right, so to, to introduce you to Songezo's book, I'm gonna read you a passage. He says, South Africa is a ship listing and tilting through stormy seas. So far we have responded in three ways. The first is that we keep looking for and pointing fingers at who is to blame for its current condition, which continues to worsen. The second is that having done the above continuously, we are drifting further apart and getting attracted to sentiments and ideas that propose throwing one or other sections of the population overboard and leaving them to fend for themselves in the ocean. So I thought this passage would help us um, when we get to the discussion, to discuss, you know, 
what unites us and, 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 and what divides us and um, where the solutions um, for South Africa politically lie. The name of the book is Manifesto, A New Vision for South Africa, and it really is a manifesto. Um, Songhezo says in his book, you say in your book, um, that he will step up to lead. Um, unlike many of us professionals and former activists, we are all living comfortable, comfortable lives. We are not stepping up to lead. Um, Songhezo says he will step up to lead, and he will even step up to contest the presidency. So it's a massive claim. It's a massive claim by someone who doesn't have a political party yet. <laughs> but I don't want us to get sidetracked by that. There is so much we can take from his book that can help us think about the state we're in. So the book runs through the, the current political setup and analyzes it and says, um, you know, this is where and how um, we, should, we need to change this, this society. So tell us, I mean, what is wrong with our political setup? Why can't the parties that we have now, we've got a multi-party democracy, we've got a great constitution, why can't those parties deliver something better, deliver a resolution or a solution, or at least deliver some progress? Thanks, Carol, and good afternoon, everyone. Um, I think it's because we are trying to build something permanent out of a framework that is uh, transitional. And I'm saying transitional because the political system that we've ended up with does not, to me, look like something that could sustain the democracy for generations to come because it has its defects. And those defects have become untenable, especially when one looks at the last, let's say, 12 to 15 years, I would say. People say nine years, but I think our problems started manifesting a lot earlier. It's just that we are not prepared to, to see them for what they were or for what they are at the time. And so I think we're trying to build something permanent out of something that is transitional. And I don't think in the current system, we can drive the project of democratization and democratic participation if we are serious about being an actual democracy. That those who, basically the, the voters, the ordinary people in society can feel that they have a meaningful stake in what actually happens and impacts their lives. And so we need to change the system. And I write in the book about how we actually should fundamentally change the system itself and create the statutory and other infrastructure that enables that democratization and therefore progress. Just give us a little bit of an idea of um, what you're talking about in terms of change. What in the political system would you change? So I'll mention in particular two things, um, to be short. The first I've spoken about often is the electoral system itself. The problem we were trying to solve in 1994 and in the 1996 constitution is not the central driver anymore. We, I don't think we should be trying to accommodate the fears of minorities. If we are a democratic society that centers itself on a constitutional order, 
it should be the values enshrined in that constitution and maybe basically who we are, uh, who we believe ourselves to be or, or should be, that anchor us. And therefore the sense of being a majority or a minority should not be racial anymore, even though there is a racial order and racial issues in South Africa. And unless we accept that we have to build a values-based society, we are always going to encounter this problem of trying to build a values society out of a transitional peacemaking, peacemaking mechanism mm. that comes out of uh, the early 1990s. So that's the first thing that we, that we need to do. The second, I say, is that we also need to understand leadership differently. And by that I mean we don't have a sense of national character and national identity. It does emanate from our understanding of what our values or at least aspirational values need to be. So we have a politics that talks a lot about bureaucratic interventions, even in the context of what Pumla writes about. We reduce it to a policing problem. GBV. It's astonishing, but we yeah. do, right? You need a bureaucratic intervention for something that speaks to the brokenness of the soul of the country and the people themselves. Mm. And therefore, the way we think about what we need to do is will by default not work. And so we need to see the role of, uh, of leadership differently in that way and how we imagine the society. I think we'll do a lot of peddling, spend a lot of money, be in a lot of conferences and never succeed because we, I believe, we're starting from the wrong place. And those are just uh, two examples that I, can, that I can give. Thank you. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of discussion about that. Um, Malcolm, I'm going to move on to you now. Um, where is your little thing? There it is. Oh, no, it's not. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, oh, okay. Sorry, I'm moving. I'm actually going to move on to Lucas because I seem to have temporarily cl closed Malcolm's file. Okay. Sorry, guys. I couldn't have time to print all this out before. I... Okay. Um, right, Lucas a desire to return to the ruins. Now the dedication in this book captures exactly what it's about. To the silent ones whose voices live on in this book, the ones that never lived long enough to return to the ruins. And in his introduction, Ledouabe expresses the hope that in the years and decades to come, future generations will read his book and through its pages hear the voices of the departed elders, feel their tears, and see that deep haunting look in their eyes to understand what the journey back to get their land back entailed. So this is the story of the elders, those who experienced the pain of dispossession, who remember what it was like um, when they were removed, and then experienced the hope of 1994, which brought, which they thought they would again, then again, once again walk upon their land plant there, pray there, prosper there, and then experience the heartache when after 20 years or more, um, they passed on without realizing their hopes. 
um, the, he looks at, Lucas looks at some of the key um, land um, settlement or land disputes. Um, and, and they're all kind of, there isn't, I don't think there's a single good news story in your book, you know? Um, the struggle for Mala Mala, I think, for instance, is, is a really interesting one. It was the biggest land claim ever, a billion rand. Um, but, but because of the way that restitution happened, um, that reform, which was successful, I mean, it was a successful claim after the community went to court, um, did not lead to peace. It didn't lead to peace, to joy, to prosperity, but it led to division and corruption and despair. The struggle for District 6, where we are now, where many of the claimants have spent a quarter of a century trying to realize their claims. And the story of the community that made way for the building of the most expensive school in the country, Hilton College, and how that community quite literally became the servants of their masters. Lucas, it's a very important book. Um, South Africa's been very quick to move on. Um, and to fail to uh, properly acknowledge and address, and address the original sin of colonial dispossession. How does colonial dispossession and the loss of land and the subsequent degrada degradation of black lives impact on us as a society now? We don't think about it as a, da a daily basis. When people do surveys, they say, um, well, you know, they ask people what, do you, what most what, what do you want most? And no one puts land down as their number one, and then they say to us, well, land is not important. How does that, that history and that disposition impact on us today? Thank you, Carol. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Well, the, the story of South Africa and the story of land is something that's going to be with us for probably the next 200 years. Um, if you go to Europe, you find a city that's 5,000 years old. Um, you find families that have lived in the same house for generations. They are able to trace the great, great, great grandfathers. So in a way, I want to believe that helps in the building of a solid society because the family structure is here. In South Africa, between 1950 and 1983, they say that more than three million people were forcibly removed from their homes and scattered different uh, different areas. So you can imagine if you take three million people within 30 years and you break down those structures, it manifests in a lot of uh, social ills. Uh, one of the things that I used to observe when I was young, I grew up in a township, Sochanguve, um, was that people tended to be very self-destructive. And I used to ask this question, why is it that people uh, tend to be self-destructive? Uh, later on, as a journalist, I'm doing research. Um, I find that perhaps it's because people did not feel they belonged 
where they lived. People did not have any roots. Uh, the oldest township in South Africa is what? Soweto. It's only 100 years old. Um, but people have been here for thousands of years. So I think after 1994, all of us, politicians, writers, journalists, ordinary people, we underestimated the enormity of the land issue. It is not something that is going to be resolved within this generation. Because it's so complex. You start with the 1913 Land Act. Between 1913 and 1983, there were so many other laws that forced people off their land. So someone was removed from land A in 1913, they moved, they were moved to land B. 1936, the law was amended, there were further relocations. 1950s, Slum Clearance Act, Group Areas Act. So it's been 100 years of moving people about. There hasn't been any stability. So I think you spoke about uh, the nature of the, our violent society. I want to believe that it stems from that destabilization of families and communities. Because we feel detached from the land. We have this unresolved or unexplainable anger. We don't know how to channel it. We just channel it to whatever uh, is before us. Mm -hmm. So I think the issue of land in South Africa is at the center of many of the challenges that the society mm -hmm. is facing today. Thank you. I think that sums it up really, really well and really, really makes um, people who might not have thought about it as deeply, it makes it quite clear, I think, what it needs. Right, I have found Malcolm again. Um, Malcolm's book, as I said, is, is a very ambitious book. Um, I don't have a copy here, but I'm sure you'll see it outside. It's, it's big. Um, it's both a critique of neoclassical economics and a historical narrative on capitalism, its development, and its, its failings. It looks at the terms we use to analyze and measure eco economies and the assumptions underlying these concepts, and makes the point that these are not, in fact, iron laws, but they are things we've constructed. Concepts like the gross domestic product, which um, is, is the measurement or the sum of all the things in, in a society. Um, and the argument in the book is that this single, that, that through history, there's been this single-minded focus on growth by economists and policymakers. And that single-minded focus has, has, has had a very high social costs. So while some people gained, the wider society and most definitely the planet um, paid a heavy price. Now we know GDP is not a perfect, a perfect number. I mean, if, if, if we, if, for instance, in South Africa, if, um, if, if criminal activity was included in the GDP numbers, we would definitely be growing very strongly um, at this point. Um, Malcolm, your book is so rich in historical anecdote and narrative. 
So to give the audience a, a feel of what kind of book it is, um, tell us, where does the concept of, of GDP come from? What's the origin of that concept? Thanks. Hello. Um, just just a, a caveat. Yes. Uh, you know, I don't think we should trivialize or, or, or criminalize criminal activity. Uh, it is actually a negative externality in the South African specific context. Mm. Um, so, so I just wanted to be clear about that. I think there's a tendency uh, to do that and mix it up with all kinds of uh, interpretations in South Africa driven by fear um, and, uh, and largely petty bourgeois fear of, of this, 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 this construct we call crime. But I would situate it as a negative externality in the South African specific context. Um, so GDP, um, yeah, the fascinating thing about GDP is both a measure and goal, uh, a governing principle and a, a metric uh, of, of uh, all economic activity is, is, is that it, it, it has been around um, uh, for a long time. It's actually quite a recent uh, construct. Um, my goal in writing the book wasn't really to, to, to grapple with GDP as a measure and a goal of all economic activity. It was to try to understand the concept of growth itself, right? Um, and in, 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 through a process of sleuthing and, and, and narrative journeying and using a bunch of methodologies, um, I kind of, you know, rooted it in, in the, the, the uh, Second World War American in, uh, in, uh, industrial complex. Uh, that, that's where I, I trace the two. What's fascinating is that uh, neoclassic economics, in a sense, predated uh, uh, the, the, the concept of GDP. Um, growth itself as, 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 a, as a, a construct, um, interestingly, you know, didn't emerge organically with the rise of, of, of capitalism, early capitalism. I mean, what's, what's amazing is, and I've read all volumes of Marx's Capital, I've studied it, um, nowhere in, in those volumes is, is, is growth mentioned at all. I mean, there are words like accumulation used, but growth is not used at all. Um, so I wanted to understand the origins of growth firstly. Um, and then through a process of, of, uh, of research, I came to GDP, which in a sense shifted the narrative from a fixation on growth to GDP as one of the bigger problems that contemporary capitalism faces. Um, in other words, the metric used and uh, the governing principle that determines our aspirations as a society, uh, as individuals, as households, um, the kind of stuff that drives our activities on a day-to-day basis. Um, when I stumbled upon GDP, uh, it, it shattered my sensibilities about uh, the kind of conventional assumptions we make in economic theory 
Um, it shuts, certainly shattered my assumptions about Keynesian economics. I mean, I always assumed Keynesian economics to be, I think, what, what most people assume it to be, um, you know, um, uh, monetarism, uh, a fair degree of state regulation uh, in, in, in determining supply and demand, money supply, and so on. Um, but what I realized is that uh, the kind of debates that preceded the Second World War, right, that is, the debates that began to occur during the 1930s in the United States um, were driven largely by um, Keynes himself in the UK and a bunch of American Keynesian uh, uh, disciples in, 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 in Washington and New York, Chicago as well. Um, and then on, that was on the one side. On the other side was a fellow named Simon Kuznet who situated himself as a sort of liberal welfareist, right? Somewhat to the right of the Keynesians around that time. Now, what gave rise to both GDP and a bastardization of Keynesian economics was the United States attempt under the Roosevelt administration to justify uh, expenditure on weapons manufacturing in order to get the US into the war, right? And through a process of, of double accounting, basically, um, what happened was uh, weapons manufacturing as state expenditure got included in the income side of the balance sheet, the national ledger, right? Um, that, in a sense, opened a door, not just to the entrance of, of Keynesians into Washington and, and what became the Keynesian revolution, but to neo-Keynesian economics, you know? And, 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 and uh, to a, a bastardization of Simon Kuznets' definition of GDP. Kuznets basically was appointed during the late 30s by the Roosevelt administration to define the economy. So that's what's fascinating here, was that there was no definition of the economy until then. And yet we assume that capitalism was fairly developed at, at that stage. Uh, this followed the, the, the Industrial Revolution. This followed uh, the massive you know, uh, 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 revolution in technology in the early 1900s in the United States um, that led indirectly to you know, the consumer boom during the 1920s, the, the so-called Roaring Twenties, as we know them. And then the crisis. So we, we would have assumed that, you know, that you know, if we had no reading of this, that we had some sensibility of the economy, but there wasn't. So Kuznets was appointed to define the economy, to give it some set perimeters. And uh, he came up with what he called, uh, not gross domestic products, but gross national product. Okay, today, of course, there's a, a distinction between the two terms. But back then, they more or less summed to the same thing. You know, today, the one is about, um, uh, it includes exports and imports, the other is, 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 is gross in terms of, of, of national, uh, specifically, uh, uh, circulation of goods and services. Um, so, so Kuznet's attempt basically was outside of the mandate, the Roosevelt mandate, uh, to, to justify the US's entry into the, the, the war economy. And because he did that as a liberal welfareist, all state expenditure was a cost, okay? 
And that's where Roosevelt felt that he became something of a burden, a, a hassle on Roosevelt's attempt to get America into the war economy and to justify weapons expenditure to the, 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 the public, okay? Um, so it was a kind of economic conjuring trick, in a sense. Mm. What the Keynesians did was they appropriated, okay, um, uh, Kuznet's definition of GDP, mangled it, and, and, and then justified the new definition of GDP by 1942 uh, by including state expenditure um, as income, uh, as a benefit. And how did he do that? Very simple. What we understand by Keynesian economics today right, is that the traditional notion of savings equals investment in economic theory uh, implies that the larger the uh, uh, ratio of savings uh, uh, in, in, in a national economy, the more robust it is, okay? What Keynes argued was quite the opposite. He argued that uh, if you don't invest, capitalize idle, okay? Um, and idle capital produces no value. So he basically pushed for great large volumes of state expenditure. That's what we all conventionally understand today. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Economics. Yeah. But can I, can I, just yeah, let me finish, sure, please. Um, sure. so, so I think it's important to see GDP and, and, and its origins as, as a very nuanced, you know, uh, 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 process of, of definition, a kind of tension in the United States um, that began in the, in the 30s, the debate between the liberal welfareists and the Keynesians, and its evolution through the war economy um, to become what we understand it to be today, minus, minus, uh, social costs and environmental concerns. And I think that's the crucial thing. Yeah. That's the thing that Keynes had a problem with. Okay, he had difficulty with those two things being jettisoned from uh, our definition of GDP, which is why I argue that what we typically understand to be Keynesian economics is, is, is false, is largely false. Yeah. I think that gives you an idea, ladies and gentlemen, about the depth of this book and um, the depth of, of Malcolm's research and, and the storytelling um, in his book. So I do urge you, um, if you're interested in economics, um, to read it. I think, from, I hope that you've now got a sense of each book. I mean, I know it's a disjointed, discussion, but at least I think you have now a window on each, on each book. What I'm try going to try and do now is, is, is try and pull out the big questions of the moment and get the panelists to talk about them. So I'm actually going to ask um, panelists about books that are, about topics that are not necessarily in their area. Um, and then the expert is going to respond. So, um, <laughs> I just think it'll make it more interesting. So, starting with the most in intractable problem. I think the most intractable problem is, is patriarchy. I think land, yeah, we're not gonna solve it in hundreds of years, but patriarchy is probably the most intractable. So, I'm gonna ask you, Lucas, 
What's your analysis of why in South Africa patriarchy is so violent? It's expressed in such a violent way. Rape is so prevalent, and there seems to be a widely held view among men that they literally own the women um, who are their lovers. Why is that, and what, and what can be done? And then I'm going to get Pumla to, to, to give a crit of your answer. <laughs> Hope that's acceptable. Oh, the question is for me. For you. It's for you. Well, I'm a patriarch, so... <laughs> <laughs> Tell us from your perspective. I think, I think we, we need to look at the issue of patriarchy in the South African context. Uh, when we look at it, we cannot exclude displacement. Again, it goes back to displacement. Um, I wrote a book in 2016. Uh, broke and broken, mm. the shameful legacy of gold mining in South Africa. And you look at how men from certain parts of Southern Africa were plugged from their roots, where there was a system that did not support uh, patriarchy, where men and women played an equal role in shaping a society raising children, raising families. So you look at how people were plucked from those communities and thrown into single-sex men's hostels. Uh, they come from those areas as men, and when they get there, they are boys. So they completely dehumanized. Mm. The uh, migrant labor system, Men left homesteads back home. They come to Marigana to live in a two meter by two meter uh, shack, tin shack. So when you look at all these things in our society, people were so dehumanized. People have been so dehumanized to a point where the only language mostly understood and used is violence. Mm. You go to uh, Rustenburg, Marikana, violence is so prevalent there. It's men beating up men, men killing men, men beating up women, men killing women. Why? If you go to uh, Camps Bay, I don't think you'll find that level of violence there. No. Why? Mm. Because I when you dehumanize people, you are mm. pushing them, you are saying to them, you are nothing. Okay. Uh, so people tend to resort to the only language they understand, which is violence, because they have been dealt with through the generations. They've been dealt with violently. That is really a, a very insightful um, answer. Thank you. Um, Pumla is now going to respond. Um, I think she might have something to say about the ideal nature and w the way in which she describes sort of pre-capitalist societies. Um, <laughs> but certainly the dehumanizing aspect, I think, is such a large uh, part, piece of the puzzle when we try and understand this country. Over to you, Pumla. You can answer the question. You don't have to necessarily criticize Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, 
So two things. I partly agree with Lucas. Um, and I also radically disagree with Lucas. <laughs> I'll tell you which bits. So here's the thing. I think that it's, patriarchy doesn't make sense unless you look at it both contextually and historically, right? And historically cannot just be within a particular, a particular context. So I mean, I think that yes, he's, you, I agree with um, Lucas, if we're talking about, I mean, South Africa's founded on violence, right? So it makes sense that you're going to have a whole range of forms of violence, including patriarchal violence. I don't think, however, that we can only make sense of the specific forms of patriarchal violence we have in South Africa by only looking at South Africa, because um, it's not a South African phenomenon. And um, I, so, so I'm not convinced that the only reason we have the numbers of, or, or the levels of patriarchal um, viol uh, violence that we recognize as violence is because, is because uh, you know, South Africa is founded on violence, slavery, colonialism, displacement, um, and so on. Um, I think that you know, we can look at a variety of places in the world that don't have the same histories and that have, I mean, one in three women in England was abused as a child. Right? They don't have the same kinds of foundational violence. We can see traces of um, patriarchal violence across several centuries, across very different kinds of societies. So we're not going to be able to explain patriarchal violence by looking only at South Africa or only at Mexico, or only at, we have to be able to look at what patriarchy does in the world. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we're also not going to be able to explain and undo patriarchy by only looking at the things that we think are the most extreme, right? Mm -hmm. We have to understand that we're not gonna understand anything about femicide if we're not also looking at the pressure to perform certain forms of masculinity and femininity. Like you're not gonna end rape in a society that doesn't create a rape culture even in ways that aren't necessarily linked to, to rape. And I think, and then the third thing I'm going to, I mean, there's a lot I could say. I'm going to say two quick things about the Camps Bay example. <laughs> eh, I would disagree. The scholarship suggests differently. So for example, we know a lot of things. We think we know a lot of things about where rape happens and who rapes and so on in South Africa. But interestingly, the one of, I was going to say one of them, but actually the leading um, feminist scholar on, on femicide in South Africa, in fact says that despite what is conventional wisdom in South Africa, the profile of the person most likely to kill their partner is privileged and owns a gun or some kind of arms legally. And so there we have it then. So all of these weird ideas we have, not Lucas, I mean South Africa, um, all of these ideas we have about dangerous, violent young black men who stand on street corners, 
most famous sites in this country for the last 40 years. And Echama Brody traces, like over centuries, looks at police records, and she actually finds that the men who kill their partners and their children the most are not who you would think. Um, they actually, the exact, the, 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 the face of the femicide of an African man is the opposite of what we think it is. And so I think that there's something then, yes, there's something to, 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 to violence being one of the vernaculars in South Africa. But I don't think we can simply link it to, to brutalized men, brutalized, because it doesn't stand up to scrutiny in here or anywhere in, in, in the world. Um, and also, of course, many studies show that patriarchy predates and that that wonderful mythical society that Lucas is talking about that is pre-patriarchal was not, in fact, pre-patriarchal. Um, that people who go to the mines, people who, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, there's, it's, 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 I would contest um, whether that society that, he, that, 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 that these, um, uh, men and women came from is a pre-patriarchal. It may be a patriarchy of a different kind, and maybe there isn't as much emphasis on the kinds of violence we see that we like to label as extreme, mm. but it would still be patriarchal um, in, mm. in, in some senses. And I don't think there's good patriarchies and bad patriarchies. There's mm. just patriarchy um, and a scale. Mm. So that would be my Thank you. That very was... short response. Not that short. <laughs> <laughs> Not that short, um, but very interesting. Um, and I think we're getting a sense that we could actually discuss all four of these topics, you know, each one of them, um, you know, in, in a session of their own. Um, I'm going to move on to land, and um, I'm going to ask Pumla again. Um, can there ever be restitution of colonial dispossession? Will that scar? of the loss of the land, will it ever be, ever be healed? Or are we always going to be white South Africans who occupied and black South Africans who were robbed? I think we have to believe that it is possible. But I think we have to, so yes, I do think it's possible. But I think it's only possible in a context where we recognize that land is not just one thing. Um, I think that restitution requires that, would, would demand that we take seriously that, that land is, is, is memory, it's, it's emotion, it's politics, it's spirituality, it's material. And until I think we think about land in those complex ways and try to pay attention, try to come up with solutions that are more than, I think Song, as I said, we always, we, we like bureaucratic. So I don't think it's something we can solve if we only have an approach that's bureaucratic, that's policy, that's legally, that's policing. But I, I don't think we can actually afford to not think that it's a problem that we can deal with. Okay. Because then we are accepting that that degradation and intergenerational trauma unaddressed and, 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 and growing inequality are, are acceptable. Mm. Thank you. Lucas, your turn to respond. <laughs> um, <laughs> you said earlier you thought 
it's going to be with us for hundreds of years. And, and, I, and I do agree. What Pumla is saying, we must believe. Um, what's, your, what's your response to that? We must believe. Mm, we must believe. We must believe we can do it. It can be overcome. It can be healed. Yeah, in the, in the book, uh, A Desire to Return to the Ruins, I deal with the, the issue of land and spirituality. It's not only a South African issue. Uh, we have a burning issue, Israel and Palestine. What is it about? Uh, World War One, World War Two. we fought over what? Land. So there tends to be, when you go back in history, uh, many wars were fought over control of land, occupation. Uh, in South Africa after 94, we're trying to fix the problem differently. Uh, there are people who are calling for to take up arms and so on. Whether that will bring a lasting solution is another issue. So land is not just a piece where somebody builds their home. If you go, for instance, to Skukuni in Limpopo, Wazulu uh, Natal, Eastern Cape, the great-grandfather is buried here in the homestead, the grandfather, the father, and so on. The, when a child is born, certain rights are followed. The umbilical cord is buried there in the homestead. So it's the spiritual attachment to this piece of land that supersedes almost everything. People feel that without the land, without us being attached to this piece of land where our forefathers are buried, where those who came before us were born, we are nothing. And that is why earlier I spoke about the violence of displacement and how it dehumanized people. Mm. So are we going to resolve the land issue uh, even if we believe? I don't know. What I know is that it's a very, very serious issue that's when you go around the villages, townships, even young people who were thought to be not interested in issues of land, are always talking about land. Mm. And their idea of land and land ownership is different from somebody who was uprooted in 1950, 1930. Mm. So possibly, and hopefully it won't happen, if there is another uprising in South Africa, it may as well be around the issue of land, and it will be led by young people. Thank you. Thank you, Lucas. Um, okay. The economy. We're moving on to the economy. Malcolm has opened that door for us. And I'm going to ask Songhezo. So the economy isn't working for the majority of people in this country. You know, government also isn't managing the economy. Growth has been elusive. We can't even 
go out and single-mindedly pursue growth with its attendant consequences. There has been very little growth over the last decade. In my view, we really need growth because we need growth to give opportunities. We need growth to have employment for people to make their livelihoods. What's the problem with the economy? Why can't it grow? Sure. <laughs> Carol. They said the big questions, right? Well, Carol, it's a, it's a multi-layered a, a problem. Don't I, take too long answering. I, <laughs> Don't I, let that be an excuse. I, 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 will not peel, I will not peel all the layers. <laughs> Safe to say it's a, a multi-layered problem. Uh, just a couple of points on the problem um, in answering your question. The first is that I think there are some historical issues that have got to do with our colonial and apartheid past on the one hand and the location of economic assets and opportunity in the country that almost a as an unavoidable consequence means that you are going to have big asymmetries in where the growth is located, where there is growth, and where you are not going to see growth at all. So if you work on the assumption that somebody who is uh, relatively well-educated, like myself, who was born in a village, grew up in a village for the first 15 years of my life, I have to leave and so is everybody else. And that means the level of skill and economic complexity you need in order to have the kind of growth that we're looking for in certain areas necessarily has to migrate away from there and it never comes back. And so when we talk about growth in South Africa, I always worry that when we talk about it alone, we can give ourselves a false sense of achievement in terms of how well we're doing because it is only located in certain spaces. And I think just from that point alone, you can see that the kind of interventions you therefore make in order to make sure that there is what is called equitable growth uh, across at least more areas throughout the country is not going to come through just, for instance, economic liberalization and so on. Right. That's the one thing. The last point I want to make Very is important. that we have to approach this as a social moral task that we have to undertake. We have to center it on justice, I think, uh, so that we accept that as a society we do not want to leave anyone behind and therefore interpret that in terms of what we need to do with the economy, but also the political decision-making and also just what happens in, in society in general. And therefore design interventions informed by that, moral, by that moral contract, I think. Absent of that, we will continue to have a conversation that proposes that we merely need to produce labor in order to feed an economy that should, when it produces more and profitably, will solve the problem. I don't think it will. So even if we were to achieve five, six percent growth, we will still have these asymmetries where 
large swathes of people are left behind, such as our current structure of the unemployed, which you know about, either have metric or don't have any metric at all, and therefore just cannot get into the 2022 right. and onwards economy and do anything meaningful that can give them a sustainable income. So I'll stop there because okay. it's a multi-layer. Absolutely. Question. I mean, I think we're getting, we're getting the sense of what you're saying that it's a developmental question. It's develop, it's the, we need a developmental strategy. Economic growth is, is just one thing that would help some people be absorbed. But yeah, the key is a developmental strategy. And, and I think we've really been lacking in that regard. Uh, Malcolm, you're up to uh, respond um, in, in whichever way you want, to comment on the question, what's wrong with our economy, why can't it grow, um, what, what can be done? Yeah, I mean, these are important questions, all of them, and uh, some of the issues you raised. I think the problem I have with uh, not just the kind of narrating of this discussion, you know, on the economy, um, some of the things you said, um, but, but more general kind of uh, discussions more recently uh, around the nature of the crisis in South Africa and the search for solutions, um, is that there's a tendency to kind of look at this thing in, 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 in what I call a, a sort of uh, uh, a gray interval. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, a kind of temporal space, uh, and I call it temporal because we tend to search for solutions within uh, a circumference of already existing systemic ideological uh, problems. And the best we can get out of th those kinds of solutions is uh, more problems, actually. My thing is about problematizing the problem, shifting the paradigm and looking at, think about it like this, if you were to step out of the thing and then look at it, um, it there's no such thing in academia as objectivity, but if you were to do that hypothetically and look at it, um, then how would you see it? So the way I look at this, 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 this problem and, and the processes of problematizing the problem is, is, is through, through history, and recent history in South Africa. Um, I think what we need to understand is both the continuities and discontinuities between past, in other words, the structural issues that we, problems that we've inherited from, from the past, and, and some of the, the continuities which I would suggest are, are overwhelming right now, the continuities. Um, so think about it like this way. 1994 basically was a, a, a partial disarticulation from uh, apartheid capitalism in the sense that um, we initially, through the labor movement, pushed for something called the Reconstruction and Development Program. Very good document, very good. I would urge people to read the original version again, not the ones, the subsequent, the two draft versions afterwards. Um, but then that was summarily ditched no less than um, two years after its, its, uh, its adoption. Um, I would say that the continuity with the kind of neoliberal processes that began to occur later apartheid, that is during the 80s, uh, was uh, the ideolo ideological expression of what 
what, what we know as GEAR, the Growth, Employment, and Redistribution Strategy, okay? Um, that, for me, was the first partial disarticulation with the past. Um, I think the second, right, were the consequences of the implementation of GEAR, and bear in mind that GEAR wasn't introduced as part of a national consensus. It was imposed, okay? Um, and, 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 and it was, it was, it was uh, pummeled through, through processes of not repression, but uh, in, you know, increasing centralization of the ANC under the Mbeki government. By 2007, we saw the collateral consequences of that. Economic terms, it, it, politically it was the, the, the removal of Tabo Mbeki. In economic terms, it was really an attempt by a bunch of people within the labor movement, supported to some extent by the Communist Party, to restore the ANC's hegemony through the adoption of something other than gear. So we had a skisa, okay, which in a sense revisited some of the RDP uh, premises and principles, uh, came up with something called a skisa, uh, clocked 2002, 6% growth, which was the target set by Gear, right? Okay, and I'll come back to this just now to demonstrate a point. Okay, then fast forward, uh, Zuma emerges, uh, a skisa is ditched, the NDP is introduced, hodgepodge of things, doesn't make sense to me. You know, um, okay, but the, end, the, the, the NDP is introduced, uh, and, and then fast forward, we've got the next uh, disarticulation that we're currently sitting with at the moment, which was the uh, removal of, of Zuma and the introduction of something that I'm try still trying to figure out. Uh, the only kind of indice of what this is was, was a vague reference in, in Cyril Ramaphosa's uh, State of the Nation address to what he calls a mixed economy. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a sort of muddling through. Uh, and I'm still trying to understand what that means. Um, now, to go back to Askisa, the thing that, in a sense, is fascinating about the post-94 economic narrative is that, A, growth has always been the target since Gear, right? It's always been the holy grail. Right, the thing that would sort all our problems out. 6% was set, a labor absorption capacity was earmarked, the gear document, provided that we had 6%. That happened not with gear, but with Askisa. During that time, economically, uh, inequality widened, uh, the, the unemployment rate didn't, didn't dip at all. Right? Um, so, in a sense, growth hasn't resulted Okay, even at its high points under Skisa, has not resulted in uh, a reduction in unemployment um, and uh, less inequality in South Africa. Okay, so there's no direct correlation between the two. And when I talk about problematizing the problem, again, I want to come back to the growth narrative itself um, and economics of growth as being part of the problem, cast in, in, in neoclassical economic terms. Um, and unless we come to terms with that, the sort of solutions that we arrive at are only gonna be in that gray, that temporal gray area that I spoke about initially. You know, so we can come at solutions to virtually everything 
in, in the South African economy. Uh, and many people have and continue to. But none of them have resulted in sustainable solutions. Right? Nice. Um, there are also tropes that have been bandied about, certainly since, since uh, Askisa was adopted. Things like inclusive growth, sustainable development, and so on and so forth. Uh, I call them tropes deliberately, uh, because that's all they are. Okay? Um, and cast in the current growth paradigm, that's all they can be. They're incapable of being anything else. I want to suggest that the ANC, as a ruling party in South Africa, is ca incapable of transcending the kind of uh, deep foundational contradictions that South Africa is grappling with. Right? It's completely and utterly incapable of doing that. Mm. Uh, it's incapable of sweeping away the incurable contradictions you know, uh, in, 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 uh, in the society at, at this point in time. Uh, and I think what this requires really is, is a great giant bold rethink, okay, of what growth means. And I want to be clear about this. I'm not against growth, okay? I'm a degrowth advocate, um, right? but that doesn't mean anti-growth, okay? And that's another conversation, and, and, and I don't have time to go into that now. But it's not anti-growth, all right? It really is. The, the, the true definition of what, we, what, what we've been calling inclusive growth. Um, I think we need to kind of, in a sense, decenter the, uh, the debate around growth from the current goals and measures that we've set, firstly. And that's, that's, the first, that's at a macro level. Um, and and start, to start, start to look at the growth doctrine anew. Um, and we can only do that by understanding what I started talking about initially. Where did this thing emerge? Um, in what set of circumstances? Uh, what are the commonalities between those circumstances in South Africa today, and circumstances in the 1930s and 40s America and South Africa today? What are the dissimilarities, right? Um, and, 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 and so, you know, what, what would a new growth paradigm mean in terms of the very peculiar challenges that we face in South Africa, the coincidence between race and class? that continues to define privilege and poverty in South Africa. The amazing thing about South Africa, uh, well over 26, 27 years after apartheid, is, 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 is that it is, um, in a sense, it, it continues to be a society of uh, conviviality for the elite on the one side and violence and poverty for the poor, the black poor, the majority on the other side, okay? We can only bridge or get rid of that, um, you know, by, 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 by revisiting uh, the, the growth doctrine itself. You know, that, that's important. At, at, a, at a sectoral level, I think it's important to um, renegotiate the, the, the perimeters. In other words, the relationship between growth and livelihoods and the relationship between savings and investment, right? Investment is important here. It's been the clarion call of, 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 of the ANC government. It's certainly been the centerpiece of President Cyril Ramaphosa's uh, presidency, right? But nobody stopped to ask what that means. I mean, I, I can't remember the number, but we, 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 at some point it was three, three. Yeah, three, I, think uh, it's, I think he's on 1.2 trillion. Exactly. Can I stop you there? Let me, let, me um, just, let me just make this final point. Um, I, 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 think, I think that 
uh, what I've identified from my side is, is, is a couple of, well, a, you know, a handful of sectors that I think could have compound impacts on, 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 a, on a new investment perimeter. Okay, um, education's one, right? Food production is the other. Obviously, energy is important, right? And not just because of its catalytic mm. uh, effects, you know. Um, the food, and I think the land issue, you know, uh, are important. And here, uh, the spatial dimensions uh, and the resource dimensions of the land issue are very important. We need to look at this in the context of urbanization. I think that's important. You know, is to look at the land issue, not as an abstract typology, but in the context of resources within urban settings. And you'll find some fascinating uh, research agendas uh, that emerge from, from, from mm. that, from ghetto economies. That are sorry, kind of Malcolm, I'm going to have to stop you there. Sorry. <laughs> we've got oh. to, we, we're going to run out of time. I'm sorry. But you were moving very nicely into the... Um, the ANC and the ANC government and what ANC government policy has been and the impact that that's had on the economy. Um, Songeza, I want to ask you to, to just respond to that point about the ANC. I mean, the ANC does not seem, in Malcolm's words, he put it, not capable of overcoming the contradictions. Um, in my words, I'm not capable. And um, I would want you to just tell us, how do we move beyond the ANC? Is there, is there any, is that where we might go? Can we go there? Must we just believe? <laughs> <laughs> no, Carol, I think, uh, I think a lot of people are already moving beyond the ANC in the sense that where it matters the most, which is at the ballot, uh, the majority are choosing to not vote, at least not for the ANC, but also not for the opposition parties as well. And this incapability uh, to envision South Africa differently and design a new consensus and new processes that are going to realize that consensus is not just an affliction of the ANC, but I think it's an affliction of our politics as a, as a whole. Um, and therefore, I think w what we need to do as people who have the privilege to participate in conversations like this and have voices that shape people's opinions is simply to recognize where the rest of the population already is. And I'm not making this up. Uh, in the last election, only 44% of registered voters voted. 56% did not. It was a public holiday. And uh, it was a long weekend. And uh, according to the work that we've done, at least in my organizations, both focus groups and surveys, people were not busy with other things necessarily. They just did not want to go and vote. So they don't believe in the political system and the actors anymore. I think that's the one thing. The second, which in a way also responds to some of what Malcolm has said, I think we must be careful to not discuss economic problems in the abstract because governing and governing effectively matters for economic justice and measurable developmental and economic outcomes. As somebody who comes from a district and local municipalities that are completely dysfunctional and riddled with crime, partly and in a major way due to political incompetence, lack of focus and just corruption, 
we can have these discussions about growth and so on all we like. If we do not solve that problem, there will be no economic development period. And that political problem is only to be found, I think the part of the solution is only to be found in understanding what the 56% narrowly and possibly 70% in total who are eligible to vote but are not even registered, what it is that they want out of a new politics or out of politics and political processes themselves and try and answer that requirement. It's a difficult task, but it's one that we must undertake. Otherwise, all of these discussions will be very interesting, but ultimately really meaningless. Right. Thank you. Um, okay, I'm going to hand it over to the audience. Um, if anyone would like to ask a question, please raise your hand. Lady in the hat. Oh, here's a microphone. Thanks. Fascinating and very complex panel. Um, I'll try and be very brief. Uh, Pumla, I believe that if institutions of faith will actually start challenging the patriarch, that may actually facilitate some of the getting rid and destroying patriarchy. I believe that. Very, very briefly, um, is it Letwaba? Lucas, yes. Yeah, Lucas, sorry. I, I'm just wondering whether you ever commented on the issue on Koi and San land claims. And then Malcolm, the issue of Bhutan, um, ghost domestic happiness. That's enough questions, thanks. <laughs> okay, Lucas. Sorry, I didn't get the question on the Koi San land did, claims. Did you look at the Koi and San land claims at all, or ancestry in your book, in this book? No, I did not look at the Khoisan land claims per se, but uh, deal with the issue of, for instance, District 6, we deal with the issue of uh, labor tenants, the issues of uh, urban land claims in Johannesburg, uh, rural land claims. It was unfortunately impossible to deal with each and every mm. issue because land is such a broad subject. So I want to believe that the stories in the book touch and represent each and every community that was dispossessed of land. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, I didn't get the second question. What is your question? Oh. Oh, comment on gross domestic happiness. Do you think it's a... <laughs> a good measure of, or just a pop idea? Well, it's, it's a decent metric. But uh, uh, the thing is, that's the challenge, is, is the metric itself. Uh, there's nothing abstract, as, as you were saying, about, about the debate. It's actually, we feel it every day, we live it. It's tangible. The problem is we haven't actually shifted um, and asked certain questions about the problems that we face every single day. Um, you know, and, and it's not necessarily a fear of confronting those problems. It's just uh, an unwillingness to kind of shift by those who are invested in the current system 
Um, Bhutan was on to something. Um, I do think that the complexity of a new metric is not as simple as he suggests. Uh, I think that there are certain universal principles uh, that a metric can incorporate. Uh, it certainly can become more inclusive of social and environmental issues that have been disarticulated from the current GDP metric. Um, you know, but in specific local context, there, there's a hell of a lot more. I mean, you drill down sectoral level, it becomes more complex, right? So if you take the financial services sector, uh, the concept of um, uh, uh, multipliers and spillovers, uh, economic spillovers and employment multipliers uh, are more resonant than, say, in, in, in the retail sector, right? Um, you know, so it, different emphases at sectoral level. And I think that's, that's where Bataan falls short, you know, in a sense. These aren't declaratives, you know, with pitch-ups sitting in your bath, you know, with flower, uh, uh, flower petals sprinkled all over the place, proclaiming a gross, uh, national, uh, a gross domestic uh, happiness index, right? But I would support the principle. I mean, there wasn't a question that you, mm. you put to me, you simply flagged that. Mm, just a comment, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Yes, of course. Yeah. Gertrude, um, I mean, I think that the, uh, your question, your comment is around communities of faith and, and, and patriarchy. I mean, I think that's, that's a really important, um, I'm not sure what the question is, but I do think that um, faith is a, is, a, is a, and communities of faith and institutions of faith are an important part of, I mean, I, of, 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 are an important part of kind of contesting, of, of thinking about power and reinscribing or contesting power. Um, and so, you know, I know that kind of Carol sort of playfully said, do we just need to believe? Um, um, I don't, you know, I, 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 I think believing is a, is a, is a very important thing, and not just in a range of ways. I mean, I think that um, one of the quotations she started on from Female Fear Factory, which is a very particular aspect of patriarchy, not patriarchy in total, um, and how I write about um, and against the Female Fear Factory, is that argument that it's not enough to simply illustrate the problem, right? It's, it's important to, and I don't think that you can work against inequality if you think, if you feel helpless and think that there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. And so I do think that, um, I mean, we obviously can think critically about, about, about what we mean when we say believe and, and, and spaces that claim belief and, and faith and, 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 and so on. Um, but I think that we make a big mistake when we pretend that they exist outside of power or that that power is incontestable in those spaces, through those spaces. I think that we make a huge mistake when we pretend that, you know, all of these things are kind of out there. I think like Malcolm said, you know, we live all of these things and, and, and power is, is, in, is in all the small things and the, and, and, and the big things as well. And our capacity to contest, our capacity to choose a certain thing that we might call a politics or might call something else, lies in what we think is doable. Um, certainly feeling helpless and reading people's behaviors as helplessness, I think is a, is a, is a, is a only as helplessness is, 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 a, is, a, is a significant mistake. 
And I think that one of the problems that I certainly have with fellow, with some, with some fellow feminists is, is precisely this idea that we contest every kind of institutionality except those that are specifically around kind of um, communities of, 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 um, of, 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 of faith. I mean, power is power. This mm. Government, mm. economy, faith, all of the, you know, power mm. is, is, and patriarchy is, 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 is everywhere. And so it needs to be um, dealt with in all of those places because, you know, as you, as you say in some of your work, um, there's no such thing as just patriarchy. It's always with everything else that we that we that we leave. But I but I think it's important this this notion of of, of belief. I'm going to keep coming back to it because I think that if we think we're helpless, then we don't do anything. Mm -hmm. If we think that we can get our land back, then we do certain things. We act in certain ways. If we think that the ANC is not, or the opposition aren't real possible. We spend our, we, you know, people do better things than go and waste their time, right? So what you believe does actually have materiality. It's not like a ephemeral thing that's in your head and your heart. It, it has materiality. What you believe has everything to do with what you do and what you feel you can't do. And so it's, it's in, you know, so there's no thing as it's just, just believing. Mm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, 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 I take back just no, believe. <laughs> you gave a very, very good um, uh, argument. I, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks. Um, okay, over here. Yes. Uh, you, oh, where's the, where's the hello. mic? Not, hello. Oh, Hi. sorry. You already got um, it. Okay. Okay, I have a, thank you so much for such an interesting, you know, discussion. I, I think you all have, you know, really interesting insights. Um, my question relates to, to African um, Union and, and integration at the regional level and the continental level. If, you, if any of you see it as a, um, a possible solution to some of the problems that you all so you know, eloquently narrated, and, uh, and what you feel is our momentum in terms of moving towards that direction, both at the, maybe at the SADC level and at the entire sort of continental African Union um, vision. Who wants to answer? African Union. Sorry. Integration, African integration. Okay. So, so I'll take it. I, I think it's, it's one of those things that we have to see in context, right? Because on the one hand, I will say, yes, it, it presents a significant opportunity, but we must also have modest expectations in terms of what is possible, given the crisis of governance and capability on the continent itself, right? Because integration ultimately has to result in material actions that we actually take in order to make sure that it is, it is meaningful. And so as long as we have to travel via Europe to go to another African continent, or we have people stealing rail money here and then you end up with nothing, that integration just does not happen. And so always I want us to try and see the solutions that we envision with the challenge to ensure there is proper government and governance. 
uh, otherwise none of it happens just piles up piles up as paper that ultimately delivers nothing i'm going to be very naughty and just take one more question because we are at the end um who is going to be the person okay i'm not deciding the people with the microphones appear to be deciding okay <laughs> there we go <laughs> is to Songhezo. Um, it's actually more of a direct question, and that is that, firstly, I have a glimmer of hope listening to you. Can you hear me? Yes. I can hear yes, now. Can hear. Okay. I have a glimmer of hope listening to you. My fear is that you are speaking to and writing for the converted. You speak about a national sense of unity, and my question is, how are you going to go about reaching out to the rural poor, to the angry militants, to, to those who are not going to read or cannot read? In fact, how are you going to get your message out beyond this rather privileged group who read your book and attend and, and listen to you? Thank you. How? How do you do this? Thank you. I love this question because we tend to think that the space is where people find me, such as this one, is where I'm at. Mm. Actually, 90% of our time we spend in villages and, and peri-urban areas and townships, and there is a critical difference between people in those communities and people in this audience. In the villages, they don't theorize. They want a plan of action, and they want to move tomorrow. Here, there is a whole lot of discussion about theory and what will work and what won't work and how are you going to do this and that with a critical word being, how are you gonna do it? You say you, meaning me. They don't use that term. They say, what are we going to do tomorrow? And that, there is meaning in that, a cause for reflection, right? So we spend 90% of our time. We were in Kumbu two days ago, and in Nelson Mandela Park in Mtata a day later, and so on. We've been to Alice, Toyando, Umlazi, Ulundi, and so on. That's where we spend most of our time. Thank you. We are now at the end. And um, thank you, everybody, for your attention. I think it was quite a fascinating and wide-ranging topic. And thanks very much to the panelists for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This event was made possible by the support of the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture, the City of Cape Town and the Heinrich Bull Foundation. See you in the next episode.